Um, we're going to start in Romans chapter 10, if you have a Bible. And again, I apologize, we don't have the screen operational, so I can't put anything, any slides up here to help us along. Uh, but I certainly do invite you to open the Bibles and read with us. But in, um, in Romans chapter 10, Paul wrote to the Christians, we're going to begin reading verse, uh, read verse 14 and 15 there. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Have you ever maybe asked the question of someone, have you ever heard the gospel? Uh, and uh, maybe there are even some here tonight who haven't heard the gospel. But both of, most of us, I think, that certainly we would say, yes, we've heard the gospel. We even have a pretty clear idea of how the gospel was presented to the world. And maybe we've obeyed the gospel as well and become Christians. But another question that relates to that is, have you ever heard the gospel as it was heard in the first century? And again, we would think, well, it's the same gospel because the gospel doesn't change. It doesn't, it's the same story. It's, uh, it's the same message about the same events. And certainly to obey the gospel today would be the same, going through the same thing that would be involved in obeying the gospel in the first century. But I ask that question from the standpoint of understanding, to, uh, to some degree, how the gospel was understood in the first century. I think what we recognize is that many times we find it that we may come to an improper understanding of what the scriptures are teaching because we are treating ourselves as though we are the first ones who ever received this message or we're treating what we read in the Bible as though it specifically applies in every instance uh, to the society that we live in, uh, to the definition of our words, to the cultural assumptions that we have around us or maybe even to our personal lives. And I don't want to suggest the Bible does not have application is not relevant. Obviously it is. That's the very reason we're here studying it. But I think we also have to recognize that the scripture was written in a social context. It was written in a cultural context. It was written to a specific audience. And those who received the gospel heard it through those ears and therefore would have come to understand some things about the gospel, sometimes that we may miss, things that, that add to, the, to, the, uh, to our deeper understanding of what God has revealed before us. So I suppose the question I want to address a little bit tonight is what would the gospel have sounded like in the first century? In, in Romans chapter 10, Paul says here uh, that uh, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. So the gospel is a gospel of peace. Paul identifies it that way. Well, what did that mean to the Roman audience for, the, for them to hear the gospel as a message of peace or even to be titled the gospel of peace? The terminology here is familiar to us, yet it is, as well there are connotations to it that I think um, that challenge us in understanding how what, what the words and what the ideas actually would be. What, what does the word gospel mean? What's the terminology say to us? Well, we may have certainly heard that the term gospel itself means good news, that it means glad tidings. In most cases, when you see the term gospel, particularly as it's used in the New Testament, it is a reference to the scriptures themselves. It is the message that's been written down by the apostles and the apostolic message. It is the story of the coming of Jesus Christ. Paul relates it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, to the very basic elements of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's been, that it was preached in the first century, that it was attested to by miracles, and that, it, that it, it has to do with this aspect of what God has done for us for our own salvation. However, to the first century Roman, the word gospel itself, that we simply attribute to good news, had its own connotation. 
And it arises from a common use within the Roman Empire itself. So when the Jewish apostles went out to preach the gospel, being led by the Apostle Paul and the commission God gave him to do that, to preach to the Roman world, to preach to the Gentiles, they were entering into an arena where their audience would hear a message differently than those who were, Jew, those who were Jews and those who were uh, of their own culture. In the same way that if we went to a foreign country to take the gospel message, we have to recognize that this message is going to be received within the cultural elements that, were involved, that are involved in that particular society. That doesn't mean the word of God changes, but it means we have to understand that there may be things that were involved in the first century that helped people understand, or at least they would have been received in a way uh, that would, may have helped them understand better or may have got in the way of them understanding what really the, the scriptures were teaching. And so there was the proclamation of the gospel of a message that was involved in the aspect of a celebration. The word gospel, which in the, in, in the uh, Greek language is euaglion, uh, means good news or glad tidings. We mentioned that. But it was in, in the Roman usage, it was intrinsically tied to the good news having to do with the emperor, having to do with the Roman Empire itself. So the Romans often used the word gospel. But when the Romans used the word gospel, they weren't talking about the story about Jesus. They were talking about the good news as it referred to the emperor's accomplishments. So they would talk about the spread of the gospel, or they would talk about the receiving the gospel message. Not because they were receiving what the apostles were teaching, but because the, there was a proclamation or a message that was sent around the empire that exalted the achievements of the Roman Empire. New Testament theologian N.T. Wright says uh, that... The gospel was the celebration of the ascension or birth of a king or an emperor. And it went all the way back to this aspect of the birth of the Roman emperors, that the, the, the news of the birth of the Roman emperors was called the gospel. In Paul's world, then, the main gospel, the use of that term, was the news and the celebration of Caesar himself. So you had a government that had a leader that was not only a political leader, but in the eyes of the people, he was considered to be a divine leader, one that was connected with the so-called gods of those days. He himself, over a period of time, came to be deified. So when there was a message that had to do with the emperor, many times it was referred to as being a message of the gospel or the good news. The word is used in connection with Augustus on the calendar inscription from 9 BC, which says, but the birthday of the God was for the world, the beginning of the tidings of joy. And that's the word uh, eugelion, which is gospel, on account of him. So here's the birthday of the emperor, and it's called what in the Roman language? It's called the gospel. The birthday of Augustus was considered the beginning of the gospel in the Roman world. Now, what I want us to understand is that when the apostles then went out to preach to individuals about the gospel of Jesus Christ, they heard that word in a certain context. And maybe that is one reason why they uh, were, they were uh, wanting to know, or at least this aspect of wanting to, be a, uh, to hear what was being said, because this was a word that was used in their day to have to do with something that connected with even the political circumstances they were in, or even those to which they served as gods. And so the idea here of the, of, the, of the idea of gospel would have an impact in that society. Notice Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 18, Paul then begins to open the gospel in the city of Athens. Primarily you see uh, a Greek culture and certainly one that would be influenced by the Roman world. And he has a whole different starting point. Uh, there, uh, he doesn't go into the synagogue and preach to the Jews first, but rather he preaches, uh, 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 you see, in the Areopagus. He preaches among the very statues of the gods of the Roman Empire. In Acts 17, verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, 
What is this babbler trying to say? And others remark, he seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news, and that's the word gospel, the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. And so we can readily see that, that they wanted to know by Paul, very well by Paul's use of the term good news. Here's good news. Good news about what? Good news about us, about our emperor, about the empire, the things that we, we, we want to hear. And so they come tell us about this. But we can also recognize... That when Paul and the other apostles began to preach the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, a conflict was bound to arise. A gospel message that was from Christ, a gospel message that promoted the accomplishments of Christ and not of the emperor, would place Jesus in competition with the emperor and his allegiance to the people. So they expected a message to be about something that, that had to do with their culture, and here it was something that was different than that. You look again in Acts chapter 17 and notice that the charge brought against Paul for preaching the gospel in Thessalonica had to do with this aspect of the Roman Empire. When they, the Jews, did not find them, that's Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there is another King Jesus. Because no doubt the gospel message included the birth of Jesus. Here's Jesus as the gospel message being coming, coming into the world as a, as a divine one who would become a king. And immediately in the context of the Roman thinking, that made him a competitor to Caesar himself. And so though they wanted to hear about it, it was a message that concerned them and ultimately got the apostles in trouble. So it seems though that, that, the, that the Jews many times, those who are persecuting Jews, use this gospel message presented by the apostles against the apostles themselves to, uh, to, uh, to their advantage to aggravate perse- to persecution of Christians. And they did that with Jesus, didn't they? Though the aspect of the gospel, the use of that term gospel was among them itself. They simply said to, to Pilate, oh, he's a king. You need to recognize that, he is, that, he, that, that, that the preaching of Jesus as the king was to them treason. And so the Jews told the Roman city officials that the Christians were preaching the gospel and that the gospel itself indicated to them that there was another king or another emperor who was worthy of celebration. And that was, in the Roman mind, you see, something that needed to be dealt with. In the initial passage we looked at, Romans chapter 10, verse 15, Paul called the gospel the gospel of peace. I want to connect the other word that. What comes to our mind is that when we hear the word peace, of course, in our own in our own society, are the things we mentioned. Some of the things we mentioned about even this morning that peace to us is the absence of war, it's the absence of conflict. We're at peace when nobody's trying to destroy us, and we're not trying to destroy anybody else. Peace is also this aspect of the calmness within a person's attitude, or the calmness of spirit, where an individual is able to approach difficult circumstances and to be at rest inwardly. But peace and the aspect of the use of that terminology has been understood differently in different cultures and I suppose still is depending on the society that you were among but peace in the Bible was never just about the absence of conflict we talked about this this morning we often view peace in the, t- in the context as well of the idea that peace comes about through negotiation so if you have two countries that are warring against one another 
What do we need to do to bring about peace? Well, one of the first suggestions come, we need to sit down and talk about it. We need to come together and meet around the table, decide on what side of the table is going to be and whether it's going to be round or square. But we're going to sit around and we're going to talk about peace and try to come to some compromise that we will use diplomacy and we will use compromise to come to an agreement and then there will be peace. So we think of peace as that which is acquired through delegation and diplomacy and negotiation and that which takes effort to accomplish. But when we do get peace, when we are able to accomplish that in an outward circumstance, what we expect in our definition of peace is that it will save lives and produce an equality. That what will bring about peace is when everybody is willing to admit that they're all the same, that we're all equal, then we will have peace. Now those are not bad concepts about peace, and I want to give that impression. But when we look at the preaching of the gospel in the first century, what we recognize is just like the word gospel would have had to the Roman era a different look, a different understanding, so it is with the word peace as well. The Roman concept of peace was like ours in the sense that it had to do with this aspect of the absence of conflict in terms of a person's inward attitude. But what we recognize in the Roman concept of peace is that this was peace that resulted from war and conquest. And that peace was the result of military action, not diplomacy. That peace was not acquired in the, in the, in the Roman world in the first century, between, even between nations, because people got down to, and sat around a table and they discussed things. How peace was acquired is that you got an army and you conquered these folks over here. And when you conquered these folks over here, when you won the victory, then you were able to, then everything settled down. And there was peace that came as a result of military action. And so peace was imposed upon those who were subjugated by means of force. But now you, there is no conflict because I'm stronger than you are and I will, you will submit to me and therefore we will be at peace. So peace was not negotiable, nor was peace in the first century in the Roman world voluntary. Peace was brought about by taking lives and in essence creating inequality among men through the exercise of authority. Tacitus records the words of Caligulus, the chieftain of the Britons, uh, in uh, 30 AD when he says to robbery, slaughter, plunder they give the lying name of the empire and where they made destitution they call it peace because that's the way the Romans did it they went in and conquered folks and subjugated them and then said well now there's peace even the time of Jesus what was Pilate and the other Roman officials worried about concerning the Jews that they would create a rebellion and rise up against the Roman Empire because that would disturb the peace of the empire. Not because there would be a time which they could negotiate a settlement, but because what would have to happen is Roman, Roman forces would have to come against them and put them, you see, down again. and they, they would have to quell the rebellion so that there would be peace. So the Romans called peace conquering other nations. Mark Anthony praised Julius Caesar in his funeral oration as the peacemaker because he had successfully subjugated his enemies. The Pax Romana that we read about and we hear about, the peace of Rome, was also called the Pax Augustus, not because there was peace in the world, but there was an end to the civil wars in Rome. So when there was civil wars and by force that was able to be put down as Augustus did, then there was peace in the empire. Now, what's that all mean to us? Well, it connects the aspect here of conflict, victory, and bringing peace as a result of that action. It's interesting to note that in the altar of peace uh, that stood on the hill of Mars that we talked about a few moments ago in Athens, uh, that, uh, that that's where that particular altar was. The altar of peace uh, was 
uh, near the statue of or on the hill of the god of war. <laughs> well, why? Because that's how you got peace. You went to war and you conquered your enemies. Another element that goes along with the Roman understanding of peace is that peace was, was considered to be the product of the divine. That peace was so elusive and so difficult to attain in the world, even the Roman world, that it was considered that if a person arose and he was able to, as many of the Roman Empire emperors were able to do, and they were able to subjugate the nations around them and conquer many peoples and control many lands, that that person was not only in many, many ways to be understood as divinely guided or, or promoted, but maybe even God himself. So after a period of time when the emperors became successful and the kingdom grew, it was easy for the emperors to suggest that they were the gods because the aspect of the promotion of peace was a divine element. David Clister says it was almost universal among the ancients that military victory and thus the peace that ensued was by divine power. What's that mean today? Well, that's all interesting information, I suppose, when we look at the language and how the gospel was pre preached among the Roman world would have been received. But what does the gospel of peace mean to us when we read those scriptures today? Well, Paul says, therefore, since we have been declared, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace through Jesus Christ. Well, the scriptural peace that Jesus accomplished for us was in many ways presented to the Roman world in the very context in which they understood peace to be. And to some things, sometimes that we may miss that. That Jesus' peace that he brought to us and that was contained within the gospel message was not a negotiated peace. It was a conquering peace. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, talking about Christ, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now we know that, don't we? How did we get peace? How did Jesus provide peace? He does that through Calvary, through the cross, through the sacrifice that he gave, the atonement that's provided, through reconciling us back to God. We talked about some of that this morning. But just a few moments ago, Dennis read in Ephesians that the companion passage to Colossians chapter 1, and that's where Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 again talks about this aspect of Jesus providing peace. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That's reconciliation. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. You see, what Paul's telling us here is that peace came through death because it was through death, Jesus' death, that he would conquer his enemies. We get back, if we could read, we read those passages again that we talked about this morning from John chapter 14, where Jesus was telling his apostles, I'm bringing you peace, I'm, gonna, I'm promising you peace. He was talking about the fact that he was going to the cross. They didn't understand that. But certainly he was talking to them about the effects of Calvary that he was getting ready to engage in. And what's clear from Jesus' teaching about Calvary, and even to these apostles in that context, is that it was a battle. He told them, the evil one's coming, Satan himself, but he has nothing in me. He cannot overcome me. He tells them that I'm bringing you peace, not as the world knows. I've overcome the world. 
So here's Jesus in a time when he's talking about peace, the absence of conflict. And in the context of telling his disciples about this peace, he's telling them, I'm getting ready to fight a battle. I'm going to engage in a battle and vanquish my enemy. And because of that, you will have peace. So earlier in the passage of of Ephesians in chapter 1, Paul describes this conquest that came through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He describes it as the exhibition of exceeding greatness of his power. Chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, for far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is a name, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what had Paul already told the Ephesians before we ever get to chapter 2 about this aspect of peace? What had he already told them about what Jesus accomplished at Calvary? That Jesus, when he went to the cross and died and provided atonement, was looking forward to a resurrection. That his death would include a resurrection. And when Jesus came out of the grave, through the great exceeding power of God, he put all things under his feet. He vanquished all his enemies. Ultimately, you see, he gave Jesus to be head over all the church through the power of the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul, later on in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, told the Roman brethren at the end of that letter, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will do what? He will crush Satan under your feet. Those two concepts are together in the gospel message. That true peace comes through Jesus Christ who won a victory over Satan. That peace didn't magically come in through a negotiated treaty. God, God didn't, uh, didn't bring about peace with Satan through compromising with him or giving a little. Jesus came and conquered Satan by resurrecting from the dead. So the peace we have through the gospel has come through the work of Christ. And the gospel, the message, proclaims that peace and heralds it as the divine accomplishment of Jesus Christ. So it is the gospel, not of the emperor, not the gospel of Claudius, not the gospel, you see, of Julius Caesar. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the good news about the accomplishments of Jesus in the defeat of his enemies. And what's that good news bring? Well, for the emperor it meant, if he was successful in that, it meant that he brought peace to the region because he conquered his enemies. So when Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached among the Romans, what was the message they would have heard in all of that? What was the message they should have heard? That there's peace because Jesus has conquered his enemies. And that peace becomes your peace. So this peace was not brought about through equality. Rather, it was brought about by submission to the decrees of the Savior. It is a peace that is engendered entirely on his conditions. We talked about that this morning. But from the very introduction of sin, there was nothing man could do to get his peace back. He couldn't negotiate with God and say, well, can I come back in if I do this? He couldn't do anything about the guilt of his own sin, nor the expulsion from the garden, nor the aspect of the alienation of himself before God. But Jesus came as the peacemaker and offered peace. He offered peace at the very beginning through victory. You remember that very first prophetic prophetic statement about the coming of Jesus? That after, in in the curse that he gives, you see, uh, to Satan, he says it real clearly right up front in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Or the, or the, the seed of the, the seed of the 
devil will bruise the heel of the seed of woman. But in the end, the Satan will be crushed on the head. The death blow will come. And in that certainly, certainly in that picture, there was this aspect of victory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, another passage I think that fits into this context, when we think about this aspect of the, the peace that God offers to us comes through submission to the one who has conquered for us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, For although we are walking in the flesh, we do not wage war in a fleshly way, since the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. Now Paul's writing as apostle, and he's saying to the Corinthians, this is the nature of our warfare. This is the nature of any victory that we would win. It would come not through physical means or through physical warfare or any type of weapons that we would raise up against our enemies. That Christ has won the victory spiritually at the resurrection. And what we do is we demolish arguments and thoughts that would rise themselves up against the knowledge of God. And certainly what we do in teaching individuals is we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That true peace comes when individuals are brought to the point where they subject themselves to the one who's won the victory. To experience the peace that God offers must, means we must be obedient to him. To have that which the, the victor would offer to us means that we have to put ourselves under the one who has won that victory. We are called to submit, not just because God is greater and transcendent from us, we are called to submit because of what had happened at Calvary and what happened in the resurrection. Jesus has won an enormous victory. And if you are his, his uh, subject, if you are his citizen, you enjoy the fruits of that if you submit to his will. And so Christ has won the victory through the blood of his cross and his resurrection from the dead. But we are called as well to engage in the battle against Satan in our own lives. We have to fight against sin. And Paul urges Christians to engage Satan in Ephesians chapter 6. Take on the whole armor of God. That we might be able to stand against the deceptions and the wiles of the devil. That we might be able to ward off sin. That we might be able to live like Jesus Christ. And so he says that we should stand, having girded our waist with the truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you were able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. So what's Paul saying? Again, this is Ephesians chapter 6. This is the end of Paul's great treatise to the Ephesian church about Jesus' victory on the cross, about the aspect that he has brought everything in subjection to his own will because he resurrected from the dead, and that we share in that victory. He says you've got to keep fighting. You have to take on this gospel armor, so to speak, in order to promote the gospel of peace. You have to submit. He even mentions in verse 18 the idea of prayer that we talked about this morning. Prayer is the solution to inward conflict. To bring about inward peace, we must pray always and make supplication in the Spirit. Persevere to the end. The gospel of peace, then, is the good news of a conquering Savior. It is the good news of a conquering Savior who cannot lose. The battle, in essence, has already been decided. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Satan could do nothing about that. And there's nothing within, you see, the weapons of Satan or the strategy of Satan that can undo what has done 
or forestall the ultimate victory when Satan will be cast down. If you are in his kingdom, if you are subject to the victor, then you have nothing to fear. He's in complete control. And in a sense, what we have to recognize is that Jesus has done more than just won the victory over sin. He's invited us who are sinners to share in that victory. You understand how, how uh, ironic that is, if that's the right word to use? Certainly it's astounding and profound that we're participants in sin. The very thing that Jesus came to this earth to fight against and ultimately to conquer in the person of Satan, you and I participate in it when we violate God's will. And so we are all sinners. But Jesus comes then to conquer Satan, but in the process of conquering Satan, he offers us the opportunity to join him in that victory and to share in the benefits of that victory. One of them being, obviously, the aspect of peace. The peace that he attained becomes our peace. There's a passage, I think, that reflects that, at least in my interpretation of that, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Now, Paul's defending his apostleship and talking about his work as an apostle, and the we there certainly may be specifically applicable to the aspect of the apostles and Paul himself. But the mention of the triumph here is an interesting element. The term triumph in this passage is specifically referring to an event in the Roman Empire, a somewhat uncommon event, but an event that would uh, immediately be recognized and put in its context that the triumph mentioned is the celebration process that was given by an emperor to a victorious general or commander in the Roman army. So he sent an army, a general out an army to win a great victory, and they met certain conditions in the victory of that then in order to reward them, they would be brought back into the city of Rome and they would be a great procession or a great parade called a triumph. And the highest honor that could be given to a victorious Roman warrior would be to have his own triumph. What Barnes tells us about it is that there were conditions of that. This person had to actually have been the actual commander-in-chief in the field. The campaign must have been completely finished. The region brought to absolute peace and the victorious troops brought home. He had to at least vanquish 5,000 of his enemies and, he had, and, and he had to, it had to be something that where he actually initiated the particular battle, not something where he just repelling someone that's attacking him. And it had to be not in a civil war, but it had to be a victory that was accomplished over a foreign foe. And if it met those conditions, then the emperor, out of his graciousness, might say, okay, come back to town, we're going to have a parade. You are in the front. And then behind this victorious commander in the Roman Empire would would be all of those who not only served under him, but in the back of the procession would be all those whom he had vanquished that were still alive. The slaves, those who had been taken captive. And he would parade through the streets of Rome to the capital. What's interesting is that as Paul mentions the triumph, he says that Jesus has led us in the triumph. Well, what's he talking about? What's that mean? What's the image? Well, there are two thoughts on this, and that is one is that, that Paul is one of the commanders or one of the comrades of Jesus, who is, is Jesus' parade, so it's, obviously. That Jesus, Paul is one of the commanders who has followed Jesus in the winning of this great victory and therefore sharing in it. And so that Paul is one of the soldiers marching behind Jesus, and Jesus is leading him in triumph. The other 
interpretation of that is that Jesus is at this parade, this procession of triumph, where Paul is a participant, that Paul is one of those who's been taken captive by Jesus, that he is one of those who've been conquered in the work of Jesus, and therefore he is also in the parade. Now what the passage goes on to say is that there are two different ways of looking at this procession. It's a sweet aroma to those who are victorious with Jesus Christ. It's the aroma of life to those who have been disobedient to the word of God. It is the aroma of death. You see, if you are on the winning side, then this is a, this is a great celebration. Ultimately, you see, you're going to go in into the city or wherever you might live and enjoy the peace that this particular victory has gained or accomplished. But if you're one of the slaves in the back that's been conquered in the, Roman, in the Roman situation, the end of this parade probably meant that you were going to be executed. Now, what's all that? Why would Paul mention this? Well, again, I'm not sure whether or not Paul's one of the commanders or whether he's one of the slaves. You make up your mind about that. I think that there is, there is some uh, reason to see that Paul, what Paul's actually presenting himself here is one who has been captured or conquered by Jesus, that he is one who, who, who was at one time an enemy of the Lord, but now because of the resurrection of the dead, he has been conquered by the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's being led in triumph. His whole life is this procession of being in triumph behind Jesus as one who is a slave of Jesus. And Paul readily talks about himself being a slave. Whichever it is, Paul, what he's presenting here in this image is that Paul's sharing something that the one who has won the triumph is not him. That Jesus is the one that this parade is all about. That he's the one who's won the great victory. And the very fact that the Lord is leading him means that he is sharing in what all of that means. That he is to go out and spread peace to others. And he says it here that he's to spread this peace through the knowledge of the Son of God. To the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's being led in triumph with Jesus Christ. Now again... We scratch our heads about that. Maybe we read over that passage and we really don't see that. Well, yeah, Jesus was triumph, triumphant and Jesus is leading him in a triumph. And we really don't know what, we know it's not a motorcycle, but we don't really know what a triumph means here. And yet when you put it in the context of the culture that was, where the gospel was first preached, it is a powerful image to understand that peace, the peace of the gospel was the fruit of a great victory. A spiritual victory that lies at the very heart of our relationship to Jesus Christ and ultimately to our own destiny. If we are in the kingdom of God, subject to his will, we are being led in a triumph ultimately to gain forever the peace that's been secured that can never be unsecured by the work of Satan. Satan and his kingdom have been vanquished. The throne of Jesus Christ is established forever. And to be in his kingdom, submitting to his authority is to experience this peace and this relationship to God. Are you in the kingdom? you have this peace? Have you obeyed His commandments? Are you being led by Jesus not to your death, not to your execution, not ultimately you see at the end of this parade and this great triumph to meet the wrath of God, but rather you're being led in this triumph as one of His, as one who has been destined to ultimately share in the peace of the kingdom, being submissive to his will. That was the invitation of Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached about the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus is on his throne. He has won a great victory. 
He has accomplished what He came to do. What does that mean to you? What shall we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You must submit yourself to the King. If you don't submit yourself to the King, then you will be destroyed. There is no salvation apart from that. And so Paul says that if we die with Christ, we're made alive together with Him. If we are willing to submit, even though we have been conquered in the aspect of our own sin, we will come back to life through the blood of Jesus Christ, being forgiven. You think Saul of Tarsus came back to life? You think that man who was conquered by the gospel of Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road was able to win victories of himself for the cause of Jesus Christ later on because he was brought back to life by God? Certainly that's the picture. Thank you for your attention. I hope some of these things have been helpful to us in being able to get a clearer, more comprehensive picture of what Jesus has done for us and what we really have been able to, we're able to experience as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is truly the gospel of peace. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to, to stake your claim for eternity on the work of the cross of Calvary. Put your trust in Him. And that's what the word faith means. To put your trust in Jesus. You don't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. You have to rely on what He has done at Calvary. So you have faith in Jesus Christ as His person. You have confidence in what He's done as the Savior of the world. That He died and He buried and He was resurrected from the dead. You're willing to repent and turn away from sin. Make a commitment to follow Jesus. To be led by Jesus Christ in the ways of righteousness. That you would be willing to confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord. To make a public a, a statement of allegiance to Jesus as the Son of God. And you'd be buried in water for the forgiveness of sins. That burial is reflective of your spiritual death to sin. And ultimately is a preface to your spiritual resurrection to life. So you must be buried as Jesus was buried in water that you might rise to walk in newness of life. Maybe we can help you do that. Let's stand and sing.